chapter 8. And if you need a Bible, just, uh, you know what to do. Lift up your hand and we'll get you a Bible so that you can follow along with us. He's good, isn't he? Revelation chapter 8. As you know by now, the book of Revelation is divided for us into three very basic sections. Chapter 1, verse 19, John is told to write the things which he had seen, past tense, the things which are presently, and the things which shall be hereafter, future tense. And so, chapter 1, the things which thou hast seen, Jesus Christ, John, the last living apostle, the last one that had been with Jesus, walked with him, heard his words, seen the things that he did, was there at the cross, the only one of the twelve, a witness of the resurrection of Christ. He testifies to what he had seen in chapter 1. Then, the things which are chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Seven letters to seven churches, which literally existed in the continent of Asia Minor, but that also represented seven periods of church history that John was writing prophetically that hadn't happened yet. But we look back and we can, you know, line up what has happened with what was written and we see that that aspect of church history was prophesied and foretold beforehand for john it was the things which are presently the church age and then the things which shall be hereafter or future events chapter four through the end of the book john told to write the things which shall be after this after what after the church age And so, chapters 4 and 5 is the church in heaven, because immediately following the church age, the first thing that will happen is that the church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air at that event called the rapture, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we see the church in heaven in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. And then, the section that we find ourselves in right now, the tribulation on earth. That while we are in heaven, safely tucked away for that period of seven years, down on earth, all heaven is breaking loose, literally. The final seven years of world history, known as the tribulation in scripture, a time of unparalleled suffering and judgment, of which Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 22, that unless those days should be shortened, no flesh should be saved. The things will be so bad, the situation, the conditions, the events, the judgment of God being poured out will be so heavy that except there come an end to those days, there would nobody survive them. And of course, we know by now that the purpose of this tribulation, this last seven years when God will judge the world, the purpose of it is first of all to pour out wrath and judgment on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. For God to make right all of the wrong that we see taking place in the world around us on a daily and ever-increasing basis. Second of all, the purpose of the tribulation, a last-ditch effort to save those that will give their lives over to Jesus Christ. The book of Jude, in verses 22 and 23, Jude exhorts his, his audience and he says that on some have compassion making a difference and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And we see the same thing taking place during the tribulation. Right now, the age of grace The kindness and the goodness of God leads us to repentance. His compassions fail not, and we have responded to His mercy. But there's coming a day when it will no longer be compassion that causes people to come, but rather fear. They'll recognize the awesomeness of Almighty God, and there will be some, howbeit few, that will bow the knee 
and will give their lives to Christ during that time. And so the second purpose of the tribulation, to save those that may at that point give their lives to Christ. And then third of all, the third purpose of the tribulation is to restore and to redeem Israel as a national entity. God is not yet through with the Jew. There are yet seven years left on the time clock of God's dealing with Israel as prescribed by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And so that will take place during those last seven years. Now the chronology of the events that will take place during the tribulation time are first of all seven seal judgments. The lamb we saw in chapter 5 took the scroll out of the one who sat upon the throne. Nothing else other than the title deed to the earth. And that scroll was sealed with seven seals. And as the lamb takes the scroll and begins to break the seals, we see corresponding judgments, events taking place on planet earth. Seven seal judgments begin the tribulation. Those are then followed by seven trumpet judgments that we will look at tonight in our study. Seven angels, each time an angel blows a trumpet, there's an event again, a, an outpouring of some occurrence upon planet earth, an element of judgment. And then after those trumpets are complete, seven bowls or seven vials that fill up or complete the wrath of God. So the tribulation chronologically broken down by these events. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. That's the chronology of chapters 6 through 19. But in between, as we make our way through, there's going to be several what we call parenthetic passages. That, that, that John just makes these observations as he's seeing this vision of what is yet to come. And so we'll see those parenthetics. And, you know, if you didn't, he weren't here last week, I would encourage you to pick up the, the recording of that and just kind of hear the, uh, you know, kind of the explanation of some of these parentheticals, if you would. But now where we pick up in chapter 8. Last week, chapter 7, we had a parenthetic passage. You know, we saw, uh, you know, the redeemed standing or the 144,000 sealed. And, you know, we, we, we took a look at that. But now as we get into chapter 8, the lamb is about to break the seventh seal. Six of them have already been opened in this mysterious rolled up scroll in his hand. There's one seal that is yet to be opened. And here in verse 1 of chapter 8, he opens the seventh seal. And we read, and he says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Now last week we talked about the relationship between time in heaven and time on earth. And how they are completely different things. And if you missed that, you definitely want to get your hands on that. But John relates to us here that at the time that the seventh seal was broken, that all of the multitudes of the angels, we're told that there was you know, a, a multitude of at least 10 million angels that were there around the throne. That the 24 elders who represent the entirety of the church, the redeemed of the Lamb, that they are all there. Millions upon millions of people. All of this praise that's going forth. But at the time that the seal is broken, there's a silence in heaven. And you can imagine what it would be like to be sitting in absolute silence in a multitude so great for a period of time that seems as, to John as though it was a half an hour in length. And silence can be an, an incredibly powerful thing. An awesome intensity about this. And consider again the significance of what's taking place. The scroll that the lamb is holding in his hand. The deed, if you would, to the earth. In chapter 4, John wept convulsively because he saw that there was no one that was worthy to meet the requirements of redemption. And he realized that if the world isn't redeemed, then it will forever exist in the control and in the hand of the usurper, the devil. And that the curse and the fall and sin will have its way and the whole planet will ultimately go to hell, literally, because no one has had the right or earned the right of redemption. And then John is told, don't weep. 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed. And and he is worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals. And John looks and he sees not a lion, but a lamb. He sees nothing other than the son of God, Jesus Christ. Slain from the foundation of the world, bearing somehow in his body the marks of the crucifixion. And as he takes the scroll from him who sits on the throne and begins to loose these seals and things began stirring on planet earth. But as he comes to that seventh seal, all of the terms and conditions of redemption being met at this point, the implications of what he has done come into full force in the hearts and the minds of those that are gathered there around the throne. That this is it, that as he takes the scroll, That as the one who is worthy, the one who has the right, breaks that seventh seal, all earth is now going to be made right. Everything that was turned upside down in the fall, every bit of corruption, every bit of, of sin and disgust and abuse and abandonment and all of what makes this world so dark as it is, is about to be made right as he reclaims right of redemption and he's going to take ownership and set it right. And as he breaks that seal, the awesomeness of that moment comes upon the crowd there in heaven. And John says that there was absolute stunned silence. What's going to happen now? And we know that the response is going to be wrath. And it's almost like, I, I mean, I can almost remember as a child. You know, when you're over at a friend's house or, or maybe you have a friend over at your house and you do something that you're not supposed to do. You know, and, and I mean, maybe it's real bad, you know, and like a baseball goes through a window or something like that. And, and there you are and there's, there's all this, you know, noise and all the people are and all of a sudden the, 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 the ball goes through the window and dad comes to the window. The one who has the title deed is there and he's mad. And you don't know what to do, but you're just frozen in utter silence. And there's probably an element of that, you know, in in the people that are there like, "Uh oh, dad's ticked off, you know. (laughs) And this period of silence, I I really believe that this period of silence, it would have gone on. It would have been longer than a half an hour. But I know for a fact that Bobby Hargraves is going to be there. (laughs) And he's going to say, Jesus, help him. Because that's what he says. If you ever know him, you know, that's Bobby's. And that's going to break the silence. And at that point, (laughs) the prayer that was prayed for 2,000 years, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. The word Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. That prayer that for more than 2,000 years, uttered upon the lips of the children of Israel, that prayer, God, establish your kingdom and make it right at that moment. The prayer is going to be answered. And at this point, God is going to take back the world. And everything that we read between here and the end of this period of the tribulation is the writing of everything that is wrong upon planet Earth. Notice what happens. He says, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, And to them were given seven trumpets. Now some have have gone so far as to say that these seven angels that stand before God, that these are the archangels. You know, and you've heard of Michael, the archangel, and, and, and you know, uh, there are others that that have said that Gabriel also um, is one of these archangels. And uh, Jewish tradition names four others, Raphael, Uriel, Serechiel, and Reguel, you know. And, and so we have the name of six of these. You know, we don't know if these are actually archangels. The only scriptural angel that's called an archangel is Michael, Michael the archangel. But it, it literally means first angels, that these are the ones that are first in, in, in order and in prominence, that they're the ones that are closest to the throne of God. And, and you know, we don't know, we can speculate. Uh, some have even speculated that at one point Lucifer was among them. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, describe how he was the anointed cherub that covers, the kind of the worship leader in charge of uh, all of that. We don't know. It's all speculative. But here now, these seven angels that are there in the presence of God, they each take one of these trumpets 
And then notice in verse 3, and it says, Another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, or a golden bowl, if you would. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. Notice with me, if you would, that in these verses, there are four things present. You have, first of all, the altar mentioned that is there in the presence of God. Second of all, the censer or the bowl. Thirdly, the incense. And then also, finally, the throne. You have each of these four things described here in this heavenly scene in chapter uh, 8, verse 3. You remember that in the Old Testament when Moses constructed the tabernacle. The story, Moses goes up into the mountain and first he receives the, you know, the law, the stone with the Ten Commandments written in them. But then he goes back up into the mountain for another 40-day, 40 40-night 40 period of time. And while he is there, God gives to him very clear and explicit instructions on how to make this portable worship tent that would be called the tabernacle. And God says to him a number of times in the instructions, he says, See that you make it exactly according to the pattern that was shown to you in the mountain." And so Moses came down and the people donated all of the materials and the things that were necessary to construct this tabernacle, this house of worship. And, you know, it describes it there in Exodus, but then it also describes it fully in the book of Hebrews. And, you know, you get the picture that that you have this, this tabernacle and in it, you had these elements, you had the altar. The altar of incense where, you know, the priest would daily offer the intercession, the the incense, if you would. That you had the brass laver or the censer, the bowl, if you would, that was there in the tabernacle. And then you also had, uh, of course, the mercy seat that was there on top of the Ark of the Covenant that was being overshadowed by the cherubim. It was a picture, a representation of the throne. And here we see John as he's there in heaven and we see all of these things not in the model, the shadow that was made by Moses in an earthly sense. But we see the literal dwelling place of God that was being modeled when Moses made the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so we see the altar there that this angel is offering this incense upon. We see the censer or the bull, and we see the throne of God that was typical of the mercy seat through all the years of their wanderings in the tabernacle. The angel in this scene is most likely none other than another one of the offices of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Bible says that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Hebrews is very clear that he is the one great high priest who reigns forever. Not after the order of Aaron where there's a succession of priests from generation to generation. But he's after the order of Melchizedek. He has no genealogy, no background, but he has an everlasting office. And the only mediator, the only one that can put his hand upon the Father and bridge the gap to us is the high priest that we worship and serve, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus in his office as high priest is seen by John in this scene. Coming and taking a censer, filling it with incense, which he tells to us are the prayers of all saints. Now, saints pray for a lot of different things. We pray for, you know, a better job or we pray that we get the house or we pray that someone is healed or we pray for our kids that they do well. There's all kinds of different prayers, but there is one prayer. There's probably more than one, but there is at least one prayer that is prayed by all saints. By all them that love the Lord and that long for his appearing. And that is come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come, Lord. And I believe that this verse, this Story, this section, these verses are here in this place for that reason. Because as the seventh seal is broken, the words of multiplied millions of God's people from the inception of the world, the, the words that were probably uttered on the lips of Adam himself after the fall, please come and set this right. Can you imagine if all of the prayers 
of multiplied millions of people in one moment come before God. And it's now time that he has opened the book and it's time to answer this prayer. The prayers of all saints that he would come, that his kingdom would be established, that everything that's wrong on earth would be made right. And in this moment, that prayer ascends before God. And we will see how he's going to answer. It says that the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel then took the censer, the same bowl with which the prayer was offered, the incense was poured upon that flame on the altar. He now fills it with fire from the altar and casts it into the earth. And it says that there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So if you've ever seen a, you know, a fireworks display on the 4th of July, you know, and you kind of watch this, you know, this big, huge, you know, wavy line just go up towards the heavens. And a silence comes over the crowd, you know. And, and it explodes, and you see this great big explosion come from it. But then, as, you know, it explodes, it, it almost comes to where it's going to be finished. And then the pieces that came off of the original explosion... Now they explode, and, and, and they explode into even more. That's what's happening here. Because the six seals have been broken, and now it's time for the seventh, and everybody there, this is the finale. This is it. This is when it's all going to be over. And then, boom, that last seal is broken, and out of it come seven angels with these trumpets. The seventh seal contains within it seven more plagues. Seven more, more intense judgments than what we've already seen at the first. And so each of these seven angels now given these seven trumpets. And so in verse 6, we see there that the trumpets are prepared to sound. Now you'll notice, if, as we go through and look at these trumpet judgments, for those of you that have been around the Bible for a little while, you know, you've read through and you're familiar with the stories of uh, what took place historically with the Jews and the, the nation of Israel historically, that there are striking similarities between the things that happen as these angels sound the trumpets and, and you know, there's something that happens on earth. There's very much similarity between that and what took place when God judged Egypt in the days of Moses, when he said, let my people go, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And there's a great correlation, and you'll recognize as we see these trumpets, uh, you know, you'll see the similarities. Notice with me in verse 7. He says that the first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. In the book of Exodus, chapter 9, verses 22 through 26, during uh, you know, the very beginning of when Moses came in and began to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, it tells us there that the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward the heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, upon man and upon beast, and upon every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail smote every herb of the field and break every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no Hell. So we see this taking place back there in Egypt. It, it, it took place scientifically, historically. And there's a lot of similarities between you know, what took place in Exodus and, and what took, takes place here in Revelation. The difference is, is that here in the book of Revelation, first of all, it isn't localized to simply one nation or one area like it was in the book of Exodus. 
but here it's worldwide. That everywhere on the planet, this hail is going to fall and it will be mingled with fire. The second difference is that here there is blood mingled in with the hail and the fire. In Exodus, there was no blood. Now, some have suggested that perhaps this is, you know, just, uh, you know, maybe it's the appearance as though it's blood, that this is a result of the, the dust that's already in the atmosphere mixing with, um, you, you know, the water that's thrust into the upper atmosphere, and it just kind of gives the appearance as though it's blood. Others say, no, it's blood. It says blood, and it's blood. You know, take your pick. You're not going to be here. You know, don't worry about it. You know, well, maybe you will. You know, I don't know. I hope you, I hope you won't, you know. Some have suggested that perhaps that, that, that this is speaking of some kind of a worldwide volcanic uh, eruption. That, that all over the world that there will just be these, these great volcanic eruptions. And that the, you know, the circumstances that are already present upon the earth. You know, and, then, and this huge updraft now of this hot air. And then it comes into the upper atmosphere and freezes. And you end up with these giant hailstones and lava falling down. You know, and, uh, you know there's always kind of a scientific... Uh, you know, explanation if someone wants to make one. And if you want to, you could do that. But, or it could just be hell. But the thing that is the same between what we read in Exodus in the days of Moses and what we see here in this part of the book of Revelation is that the response of the Pharaoh then and the response of the people during the tribulation will be the same. What was the response of Pharaoh there in, in, in the book of Exodus when this plague came? Because he noticed. And he knew where it originated. He knew where it was coming from. And he knew why it was happening. And in verse 27 there, back in Exodus chapter 9, it says that Pharaoh sent. And he called for Moses and Aaron. And he said unto them, and listen carefully to the words of Pharaoh. I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings in hell and I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said unto him, as soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread my hands abroad unto the Lord and the thunder shall cease. Neither shall there be any more hell that you may know how that the earth is the Lord's. But then Moses says this to Pharaoh. But as for thee and thy servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. And then in verse 34, after the hail ceases, it says that when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. And just as the response of Moses at the inception of this plague was a half-hearted, shallow repentance because he knew that what was taking place was on account of the sin of him and of his nation. And so just as Jeremiah said that you are as a thief that repents because he got caught. So also the people during the time of the tribulation as they see this judgment taking place, they will certainly fall on their knees. And they will acknowledge the God of heaven and his involvement in what's taking place. And they'll be cognizant and aware of their guilt before him and of the sin of the world that has caused this judgment to come. But by the end of chapter 9, we'll see that the repentance is shallow. That by the time the plague passes, so also will the conviction. That once the pain has ceased, so also will the sorrow for sin. We see that so often, don't we? The people will go through some element of tribulation within their lives. And suddenly there's an awareness within them of the things that they're involved in that perhaps they shouldn't be. The things that they're doing that they know aren't right. And they'll associate the two things together and for a while they'll seem very penitent, very sorrowful over their condition and over their sin. But once the plague passes... Once the coldness melts away and once the heat of the fire ceases, so also does the conviction of sin. And such will be the case during the tribulation when this first angel sounds its trumpet and the supernatural judgment of God comes upon the earth. 
Well, it tells us that the, re- the reaction or the a- outcome of this is that one-third of all the trees were burnt up and all the green grass was burnt up. And I can imagine, I, I don't know how to scientifically calculate, but that has to have some kind of effect upon the oxygen content in the air. You know, the, fo- the process of photosynthesis and how, you know, we get oxygen from, you know, the, 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 the green, you know, things, the grass and the trees, and have one-third of all of that in the earth destroyed. I don't know how that's going to affect it. But I can imagine that perhaps the oxygen content of the air may decrease slightly at that time. And that's a terrible thing. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where the oxygen is low. You know, me and, me and uh, some of the guys that I work with, if you ever do any kind of um, construction work or something like that, whenever you're doing something that's kind of like in a confined space or something that like where you're, you, you know, maybe like um, you're holding a nail and, and you're hitting the nail with your hand or something, there's a natural tendency for you to hold your breath. It's just kind of something that happens naturally. You just start to do that. And oftentimes, like if you're in a real tricky spot and you maybe drop the nail a couple times, you start to get a little short-tempered. You know, you'll start to like, you know, you, you get frustrated. And, and, and I've learned when I see that happen in someone, like, hey, just breathe. <laughs> and a lot of times that's the whole problem is that, you, you, you know, you're not thinking about it. You hold your breath and then 40 seconds goes by and your body's starting to starve for oxygen. And so you kind of panic. You almost get into like, I need to get this in. I need to get, and you start to feel that, you know, that feeling come over you. And I can imagine in a worldwide sense, all of a sudden people start to feel physically as though they're beginning to suffocate. Just maybe a tiny adjustment in the oxygen saturation of the air that, that we breathe. And the world will be suffocating during this time. It will be literally ending as these things unfold. Well, it says that the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. Now, this does to me sound like an asteroid. Doesn't it? I mean, uh, as it were, he doesn't say it was a mountain. He says something that looked like a mountain that was burning with fire was cast into the sea. And I can't imagine it being, you know, if it's not an asteroid physically, it's an asteroid spiritually, supernaturally, that God just kind of makes and releases, you know. But in some sense, you get this identical type of thing happening now, that this thing is going to come into contact with the earth and that it will land in the sea specifically. Since the inception of NASA, you know, however many years ago that was, there's always been kind of a monitoring of things that, uh, of any size or significance that could come into contact with planet Earth, uh, you know, like an asteroid or a comet or, or something along those lines. And at any, any given time, there are over 2,000 objects being monitored, being watched, being scoped. And there's always been kind of this debate slash uh, preparation for what would happen if there actually was something that really was on a collision course with planet Earth that had the potential of doing significant damage. And people have all come up with their theories. You know, we could, you know, blast a nuclear, you know, bomb out there and try to, you know, explode the thing. But then, you know, they made a model of it. And the result of it was that instead of one giant thing hitting the earth, then you had like 10,000 things hitting the earth, you know, and the, the outcome wasn't much better. And so people kind of present their, you know, their ideas and their thoughts and all of this. Well, if in fact this is an asteroid that we see hitting planet Earth here at this time of the second trumpet sounding, it's going to happen. There's going to be a time when something is going to come into collision with the planet. And it tells us that it lands in the sea. Now, the Atlantic Ocean itself makes up approximately one-third of all of the seas of the world. So I don't know if that's an indication, but if it landed there, then that would certainly have an effect if it was something of that size. And you can imagine, you know, if that earthquake off the coast of Japan could create a wave in the kind of destruction that that did, being something that happened, you know, under the sea, just a a rift, an earthquake. What would it be like if a rock big enough to affect one-third of the world's oceans 
was from space thrust into the sea. What kind of a wave would that make? What kind of destruction would follow that? Well, it tells us that one-third of the creatures in the sea, they're destroyed. A third of the ships are destroyed. And that one-third of all of the seas became blood. And again, you'll recall from the Exodus when Moses was, you know, proving the hand of God to be involved. He placed his staff in the Nile River and immediately the river became as blood. And it's a sign from God, no doubt, that he is involved, that he is the doer of these things. Interesting. I can't imagine the fear and the dread that will come over the people of the earth when these things begin to happen. I mean, for for you and I that are reading this in the Bible, that we have the hope of the rapture, that blessed hope, you know, and, and we know these things are coming and we read it and that's one thing. And it's yet another thing to, you know, watch, uh, you know, a, 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 a cinematographer's rendition of how these things might happen. And you see these, you know, movies about the tribulation or whatever, these films and these models, these projections. And that's another thing. But can you imagine being someone who doesn't know what the Bible says and doesn't know what's going on, but all of a sudden these things are happening that are so severe and in such rapid succession that even if you survive, you have this internal awareness that you're not going to live very long. That you know and you understand that you are witnessing and watching the end of the world. And Bruce Willis is not going to come in in a helicopter and somehow put a stop to it. And Superman isn't going to be able to fly backwards around the planet at, you know, ultralight speed and, and cause time to go in reversal so that we can change something and keep it from happening. But this overwhelming sense of doom, this overwhelming sense that I, I'm going to die. My physical frame is going to be destroyed in who knows how long. If not today, maybe it'll be tomorrow. And to be in that condition, having no hope, no solution, no answer, and no salvation. And I can't imagine the fear. I can't imagine what it will be like in, in those times that to, to realize that life will never be life again. That the world will never environmentally be what it once was. It will never be that again. That the dreams that I had as a child of one day becoming this, those things will never come into fruition. That's not going to happen. Those plans are not going to fulfill. That there will be no such thing as normal life for me again. And to just have those things to, to realize. And the conscious thought that it's all over soon. I can't imagine the third angel sounded, verse 10, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And so we see this thing happening, and now the drinking water of the earth is corrupted. And it's no longer palatable. And those that try to drink it in some way, that they are destroyed. They're not able. We saw in the last chapter, those that die during the tribulation of pure thirst. It's not the asteroid, the earthquake, the tsunami. It isn't the fire or the hail. Purely just thirst. They cannot find some place to get a drink of water. The waters are made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So he tells us that here the fourth angel sounds and that the sun and the moon and the stars, that one third of them in some way is darkened or doesn't shine any longer. It's interesting to me to consider that everything that God created in the first four days of creation as you read the account in Genesis of how God said, let there be light, and then let there be a firmament in the heavens that separates the waters above from the waters below. And let the dry land appear, and let the seas be gathered into their places. 
And then God made the grass and the trees and everything. And then in the fourth day there in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 19, God says, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. And the lesser light to rule the night, he made the stars also, and God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from darkness, and God saw that it was good, and evening and the morning were the fourth day. And here at the time that this fourth angel sounds its trumpet, what was created now on the fourth day is destroyed. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars show not. God told us right there in Genesis that the purpose of these lights was for signs and for seasons and for times and for days and for years, he tells us. He said that they would rule over it, that they would literally give order to the day and order to the night, that these things were were, were signs of order and rule in God's creation. And now we see here in this fourth trumpet that they are destroyed. They're in some way shaken. The order that was created and sustained by these things being fixed in their places is now being upset by one third. It's thrown off kilter. And whether this is due to a shift in the earth's access, which would maybe, you know, change their place or their, their time or their season. Or whether perhaps the impact of the mountain that was cast into the sea changes the speed of the earth's rotation and, you know, the days actually go literally faster. We don't know. But we know that it's all thrown off at this time. That they're destroyed in this way. And that the signs, the seasons, the days, the years, the order of God's creation is altered. It's affected. And then there's an angel that declares, whoa, whoa, whoa. As if it cannot get any worse. At this time, he warns that if you thought those four were bad, just wait until you hear about the last three. It says, and the fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, and the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Somewhere on earth, there is a chasm that leads to the center of the earth. It's a bottomless pit that it's called. Now, don't worry, you're not going to fall into it, or if you're getting a septic repair or something at your house, they're not going to find it in your yard, you know, your kids. And we used to, as kids, we knew this, you know, they told us, hey, there's somewhere on earth, there's a hole that leads to, you know, it's a bottomless pit. And we used to, that's, that's it, that manhole right there, that's the bottomless pit, you know. No, don't worry, it hasn't been opened yet, it's locked. It's good news, you know, God's got a child gate on it, you know. But someday it's going to be open. Now, if you were to, if you were to in some way figure it, fall into this thing, and you actually fell to the point where you at the very core, the very center of the earth, where, where you are there, there's zero gravity. And so with the rotation of the earth, you would always be falling. It, it would literally be a bottomless pit. You would be falling for all of eternity. And at this point, this hole is opened, so hot is it that smoke begins to arise and it clouds the the vision of the sun to the inhabitants of the whole entire earth. And then he goes on and it says that there came up out of the smoke now locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. Now, my kids... Uh, are studying American history, you know, and, and, you know, I get a a, a kind of a a breeze of what they're studying and going through. And not too long ago, they learned about these swarms of locusts. 
that would come and still do, still can come across the plains. And and in a matter of hours or at most a matter of days, these swarms of locusts can literally destroy thousands of acres of crops. And there's a sound when they come. You can hear it coming. It's like this, this deep buzzing, you know, this deep, almost like thunder that's approaching. And you see this cloud of locusts coming, and it descends upon the crops, and then it will blow right on through with the jet stream, and it will leave nothing behind but destruction. And, and the farmers would lose whole years' worth of crops because of these locusts that would come through, or that can even to this day come through. Well, when this bottomless pit is open and the smoke begins to ascend, a very similar scene is going to take place. These locusts are going to arise out of it and come out of the smoke. Only it isn't going to be the crops that they're after. It won't be the trees that they'll be seeking to destroy or a thousand acres of, you know, but there won't be any. I mean, we already saw the famine that that will be coming. But it tells us that they are commanded not to hurt crops or anything green, but to torment men for a period of five months and it tells us that their power is in their tail and their torment is that of a scorpion when he strikes a man now i've been stung by bees i've been bit by various reptiles and different things i've never been stung by a scorpion but from what i've heard it's the most intense pain that you can experience from any type uh, you know of insect or sting to be hit or struck by a scorpion In ancient Rome, when it was at its prime, there was a a unit that was called the elite guard. And they were very similar to our Green Berets or our, uh, you know, Navy SEALs. They were kind of the special forces, if you would, in Rome at the time of its prime. And part of their training is that they had to learn how to be hit by an arrow without making a sound. I don't know how they did that because, I mean, what if you cripple the guy? But it was part of what they had to do. They had to, they had to be able to be hit by an arrow and be absolutely silent so as not to give away their position or the position of the platoon that is, you know, descending upon a, a city for a siege in some way. And, and so these guys were skilled, but see, the enemy figured out how to get them. Because what they would do is just infest the areas surrounding their cities with these scorpions. Because although they could take the hit of an arrow and remain absolutely silent, there was none ever that could receive the sting of a scorpion and yet remain silent. Because the pain of that sting was that much greater than even that of being hit by an arrow, the injection of that venom. And no one was able to remain silent. The Bible tells us here that the torment of these scorpions will be so bad during that period of time. In verse 6, it says that in those days men shall seek death and they shall not find it. And they shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. You ever have one of those days? I mean, you get the sense that this is like that day. You know, you, you bend over to tie your shoe and your pants rip. And then you stand up and you hit your head. You know, and then you turn around and there's like smoke in your eyes. And then, you know, and it's just like no matter what you do, it's like, ah, you know, I shouldn't have got up today. Well, these people are going to be having a season that's so bad that the only solution is death. Well, if it isn't the water, if it isn't the tsunami, if it isn't the air, if it isn't the asteroid, if it isn't the, the sky, if it is, then it's these scorpions. And it'll be so bad that people say, well, it's just better for me just to try to die, only they won't be able to die. They'll seek for death, but for this period of five months, it says that death shall flee from them, and they won't even be able to die. That's a very mysterious thing. What happens when someone dies? I mean, we we really don't understand it. The spirit of man somehow separates from the body of man. Now, your spirit, your soul, that's the real you. That's, that's the, you know, kind of the makeup of your being, your spirit. Your body is simply the medium of an expression whereby your spirit and your soul can express themselves. But at the point that your body can no longer adequately express you, you know, and, and you can't function in the way that, you know, your spirit would need in order for you to express, well, then you die. Your spirit gives up the ghost or your body gives up the ghost and your body is buried into the ground and your spirit and your soul move out. You know, that's the real you. You know, but yet we see people that go into a coma. 
And it seems as though they're dead. You know, their body has become somewhat lifeless, but yet their spirit has not yet been released from their body. They're, they're kind of stuck there. And people can remain in comas for a long period of time and, and just not die. And here, during this time, for a period of five months, it tells us that people will want to die, they will try to die, but yet they won't be able to die. They'll jump off of the sky rise, and they'll hit the ground, and they'll stand up and... Ugh. They'll take the bullet, you know, and, and, and it won't work. It will, in some way, probably they'll, they'll have to suffer the effects of it, but it won't kill them. They won't die. And they will yet live on in, the, in this thing. Now, the great hope for you and I is that when we leave, Peter tells us that when we check out of these tents, he calls our bodies tents, he says that there's a building, a mansion of God prepared in the heavenlies awaiting us. That the new body that's awaiting us At the moment of the rapture, when in that twinkling of an eye we are changed, this corruption puts on incorruption. This mortal puts on immortality. That at that moment, man, we get that upgrade. And this tent is traded in for a mansion. And if you think of your body now, and the Bible calls it a tent, and the Bible says that he's prepared a mansion for you in heaven, just think about the body that we'll have there. But these men, unable to detach, unable to separate from the torment and the pain and the sting of the planet. Well, he goes on and he says that the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. Now, some have said that if John were seeing in, you know, the prism of future prophecy, a, a whole, you know, fleet of warplanes, that this is a pretty good description of it for, you know, someone that's writing in a time when there was no such thing as warplanes. You know, describing these things that had heads like horses and crowns like gold, faces like men, hair like women, teeth like lions, breastplates and uh, the sound of their wings, you know, like many horses. You know, we don't know what, what John was seeing. It is, the, is a bullet that comes off of a B-52 bomber similar to the sting of a scorpion? You know, you can make all these kind of speculations, but it's a very interesting description that John gives, isn't it, of what these... Uh, These locusts look like that come out of this pit. And he tells us that they have a king over them, the king of the bottomless pit, Abaddon or Apollyon, which means destroyer, that their purpose is to destroy. Interesting. But then in verse 13, we see the sixth trumpet. It says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed and were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Now if you recall, when the third horseman of the apocalypse, the rider on the black horse was released, that he was, or the pale horse, that he was given power to kill one quarter of the earth's population with hunger, remember, with famine and, and with the sword. At the, if we go by present standards, one quarter of the earth's population today is about two billion people. Now, how many does that leave? If in the first strike, two billion are wiped out, that leaves six billion left. In this strike, one third of six billion is taken out. That's another two billion. So two billion are taken out, and we're going by today's population standards at the time of the third seal and the seal judgments, and then a third are taken out here. That's another two billion. That means by this time, the world's population at least is cut in half. That's two, that's a lot of people. 
And it says that the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000 or 200,000. That's the same. Or I mean 200 million. And I heard the number of them. And I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. And by these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone, which issued forth out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads and with them they do hurt. Now, in the book, we're, we're out of time, aren't we? Bear with me. We're getting there. You guys all right? Five minutes. In the book of 2 Kings chapter 6, the account is given to us there of the prophet Elisha. And there was a king in the Syria, which is, you know, the enemy of Israel at the time, named Ben-Hadad. And he just had it in. He was going to destroy Israel. And so he conspired. And it tells us there in the story that he would consult with his advisors. And he would tell them that we're going to set up camp in such and such a place. And the Lord revealed it to the prophet Elijah where it was that they would be. And so Elisha would inform the king of Israel and he would be ready there. And at the time the ambush would come, the Israelites would be ready. And Ben-Hadad would be sent, you know, tucking his tail back into his land because his plans were confounded. And this kept happening. And finally, Ben-Hadad said, how is it that the king of Israel always knows what my plans are going to be? And so his advisor says, listen, there's a prophet in Israel, this man, Elisha. And he knows every word you say, even that which you whisper in your bedroom, because God, the God of Israel, reveals it to him. And so Ben-Hadad says, okay, forget Israel, let's get Elisha. And so he takes his whole army, and he finds out that Elisha is camped in Dothan with his servant. And so he surrounds the whole valley there of of Dothan, and, and Elisha and his servant are there in the tent. And early that morning... Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, he gets up and he pokes his head out of the tent and he sees that the whole valley is surrounded by the army of the Syrians. And he goes in and he shakes Elisha awake and he says, Master, Master, we're toast. You know, come out here, you got to see this. And and Elisha just kind of, go back to sleep. It's early. He says, no, no, you don't understand. you got to see. We're surrounded. They've got your number. You're done. We're toast. What are we going to do? Relax. Just go back to sleep. You don't get it. You know, it's kind of like Scotty, right? You don't understand, Captain. You know. (laughs) We're surrounded by Romulan warships, you know. And he says, Scotty. No, no. (laughs) He says, listen, grabs him by the shirt collar. He says, they that are with us are more than they which be with them. And then he prays this prayer. He says, Lord, open his eyes. And he said, go look again. And he goes out of the tent and he looks around and he sees that not just the valley, but the entire mountain ranges surrounding it is filled with horses and chariots of fire. The angelic armies of God were battling on behalf of Elisha and his servant and the forces of Israel. And what Gehazi couldn't see is that there was an invisible force that was greater than the physical force that was coming against them and was able to save them. And sure enough, God was able to save them. But I point that out to you to say that here we see an army that is being governed by four angels that are in the river Euphrates, an army of 200 million, but most likely it's an invisible army. I don't believe that these are visible entities that will be swarming in this way, that will be seen physically by men. But, just as the angels, the invisible angels, that in Elisha's day were able to defeat physically the army of the Syrians... So also this invisible army of 200 million demons 
will be able to physically manifest fire, smoke, and brimstone that will wipe out one-third of the earth's population at the time. How do you battle against that? How can you protect yourself from it? There's absolutely nothing that you can do. You have an invisible enemy that has a physical arsenal. You're in trouble. Then verse 20 tells us that the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet, now listen, this is the most amazing thing, repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk. They're giving their affection and their lives and their hopes to things that can't save them. They can't last. They can't hear you when you cry out and say, save me from this fire and the smoke and this brimstone. Save me from the bitter waters. They can't hear you. They can't help you. They can't produce life in you. That's why they're idols. They're dead. The psalmist declared that they that make them are like unto them. What you worship is what you become. And here we see them, dead men, worshiping dead idols. But there's a living God. And part of his purpose in producing these plagues is yet to call out, as he says in the Romans, he says, all day long I have stretched out my arms to a disobedient and gainsaying people, and you would not. And even still here, God, through the midst of this tribulation, is yet reaching out and saying, is there any that will repent? Is there any that will respond? But the word that comes back is that the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries. That's drug use. It's the Greek word pharmakia and it's where we get the word pharmacy in English and sorcery in the Bible and witchcraft in the New Testament always speaks of drug use. Using chemicals to alter your state of mind nor of their fornication. Fornication is, is any type of sexual sin or sexual uncleanness, any type of sexual contact outside of the covenant of marriage. Extramarital sexual contact is called adultery, but outside of marriage it's called fornication. And God says that they would repent not of their fornication, nor of their thefts, of their stealing. Now, the inferred truth in this is that they still yet can repent. And if in that time you still yet can repent, how much more now in the age of grace is there still yet time to repent? That still now, even in the lateness of this hour, is God reaching out his nail-pierced hand and saying to you, you can come to me and your sin can be absolutely forgiven. And the grace of God that was afforded by the blood of Jesus Christ hanging upon the cross and shouting or uttering the words, it is finished. It is paid in full. And the door has been opened for you to come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And your sin can be completely forgiven. And you can have the hope, the blessed hope and assurance that you will be spared from this time of tribulation that's coming upon the whole world. It's the promise that he gave. He said, I will come to you. He didn't tell us to look for tribulation. He didn't say to fear the things that are coming, but he looked at his disciples and he said, fear not. For if I go away, I will come again and I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He didn't say after you suffer. The blessed hope that we have is that he's coming for us. The purpose of the tribulation is not to judge those who have been bought by him and purchased with his blood, saved by grace. The purpose of the tribulation is to judge sin and to set right everything that's been made wrong through the fall. And I hope if you haven't made that commitment to Jesus Christ yet, that you'll find it, that he'll give you the grace to be able to say, Lord, take this life and make it yours. You wouldn't suffer the wrath of God, but that you would find yourself instead the friend of God 
Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. We'll read ahead. Chapters 10 through 14 is almost all parenthetic, except for the small section where we catch the seventh trumpet. It's exciting and and very insightful things that we'll see. I encourage you to, to read it and to, you know, be prepared. But tonight I pray that the Lord bless you. I pray that he fill you with the spirit, that he give you inspiration for your lives. I pray that he lead you like a shepherd, that great shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I pray that he gives you assurance, that he gives you boldness to share your faith, that he gives you comfort in your trials and in your affliction, and that he fill you with the abundance of peace. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. And Lord, it's a heavy word. Even sharing it, Lord, I just feel the, almost the, oh, it's just hard to even share these things. But Lord, we know that you came into the world to save sinners. You said they that are whole do not have need of a physician, but they that are sick. You, can't, you said I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you said that if we would come to you, that we wouldn't experience condemnation with the world, but that we'd know your salvation. And so I pray tonight, Lord, more than ever, that we would realize that these days are upon us and that our hearts would be ever hoping in you, that our faith would be strong, that our lamps would be burning. You would give us that great hope. So please, Lord, go with us. Fill us afresh. I pray you'd speak to us. And I pray for any here that might not know you, Lord, that you would just move them tonight, that they need to make that, that decision and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Please, I pray that you'd give us travel mercies, that you'd bless us as we go our way. In Jesus' name.